0: InSol International, in conjunction with the Early Research Academics Committee, presents InSol Talks. Hello everyone and welcome to this edition of InSol Talks, an initiative of InSol's Early re- Researcher Academics. My name is Richard Britz, and I'm a research fellow at Stellenbosch University in South Africa and also a member of the INSOL ERA committee. And I will be the host of this interview today with our guest, David Badet. David is currently a senior technical research officer at INSOL International. Previously, he was a professor at Nottingham Law School, and before that, at the University of Pretoria in South Africa where I also used to work, and he has done many interesting things during his career. For example, some of the things that stand out about David and which we will speak about today is his involvement in insolvency law reform projects, as well as his leadership role in the INSOL Foundation Certificate Course in International Insolvency Law. Welcome, David, and thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Rechard. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to have a chat.
0: So my first question to you is, how and when did you decide to pursue your career in insolvency law? What impacted this choice? Just tell us a little bit about your journey. I know you have a very interesting journey from your days back in South Africa until today where you are in the UK. So tell us a bit about how you got into this career.
1: Thanks, Rechard. Well, I don't think I know anyone who voluntarily entered the world of insolvency law. I think it was all by accident. Most of us ended up there by accident. I don't think you wake up one morning and say, I'm going to specialise in insolvency law today. That just doesn't happen. What did happen was I had to do two years military service in my day. So when I finished school in 1980, I had to do two years military training. It was compulsory for, for all males above the age of 18, I suppose. So as soon as I finished school, I was drafted into the army. And after the two years were and by the way, two years gives you a while to think about what it is you want to do. Because having come out of school, I had no idea. Um, And I wasn't a very good pupil Uh, coming out of the D average and getting things like an E uh, for standard grade maths and standard grade accountancy. So my options were very limited. In fact, they told me the only thing I could study was law. So it's not by choice that I studied law, was because that was the only thing they would let me enroll on. I'm sure there would have been other programs, but they wouldn't have been interest to me. So while I was in the army, I uh, I didn't think I would like to study law. And when I came out, obviously I had no job. Uh, I had clothes that no longer fitted me. I had about 50 South African Rands in my pocket. And... In 1983, that was more than just today, but it wasn't that much. I got onto the train and one of my buddies in the army had said that I could crash with him uh, when I was looking for a job. I think he was a bit surprised when I did actually phone him and tell him I'm at the station. Could he come and kill me? I don't think he was quite expecting that. But anyway, long story short, I ended up on the Monday morning going to the magistrate's office in Cape Town. I walked in and I said, I'm looking for a job. And they looked at me as though I had gone completely mad. They said to me, sir, there's a two-year waiting list for jobs at the magistrates court in Cape Town. But they said, would I be interested in working for the master? Of course, I had no idea what the master was. I'd never, ever heard of the master of the high court or Supreme Court, as it was known then. But I said, well, do they fall under the Department of Justice? And I have to tell you that the reasoning was that I couldn't afford to pay for my own studies. Um, I come from a very poor family. We grew up on the mines, five children. And so there was no chance that my parents could put me through university. So I had to study part-time. So I was looking at the state would give you a bursary to study through UNISA, through the University of South Africa. And that was my intention. Anyway, I said, well, as long as they work for the Department of Justice, I guess it's fine. So they arranged for an interview that same morning at 11 o'clock. And um, I went to the master's office and they spoke to me for an hour and asked me if I could start the next day. So that was fortunate, although highly unintended at the time. So I started the next day. I can tell you that after the first three months, I went on my first course. And when I got back from that course, the report that accompanied me back home was said to the office that they don't think I'm properly placed at the master's office. Okay. So that, that was my introduction to the master. In any event, I started doing other courses and I carried on working. Then I got a bursary to study my, my B. Euris, which is a degree. I don't think they still present anywhere in South Africa. It was a basic law degree that civil servants could do. I actually started, I registered for the diploma year uh, and then upgraded to a bachelor. And with that came a bursary to attend Justice College in Pretoria for six months at a time. Now how that worked is although I was registered through UNISA, the Department of Justice had a training college where the staff would teach you the University of South Africa guidance text, you know, the text that you have for your for each module. And so I studied, basically completed my diploma or my, my B through Justice College. I was a student there, although I was employed by the master at the time. While I was there, I used to enjoy teaching my colleagues who were in my class a concept that they didn't understand. Not that I was this great intellectual giant, please don't mm-hmm. let me fool you into thinking that. But I used to enjoy I was very shy Person, I, I I was an introvert, a complete introvert at the time. Uh, I was very shy, and for me to stand up in front of people and, and teach was just not something I could do. But for, with my friends, it was fine. But as it happened, the head of the college one day actually saw me, and I didn't know he had seen me. He was standing at the doorway watching me teach some of these concepts to to my friends in class. So I was called in and asked if I would like to be transferred to Justice College to come and teach. And I said, there's no way I can do that. I could never get up in front of a group of people and speak. Said, but I've seen you do it, so you can. So anyway, that all ended with me being transferred. As soon as I completed my studies. they transferred me up to Pretoria. That transfer was without promotion. And of course, I can still hear all, all my friends in Cape Town at the master's office saying, are you absolutely mad? you leaving Cape Town, Victoria, without any increase in salary, without a promotion. I said, yeah, well, you know, in 30 years' time, I bet you, you'll all still be sitting here in the master's office, Cape Town. And I will not be. I will be elsewhere. And by the way, that turned out to be true. A lot of them are still there. A lot of them are retired now, of course, because I enter my 60th year this year. Well, I turned 60 in August. So uh, it's, this is a while back. we talked 40 years ago. Uh, anyway, so that then I ended up in Pretoria from 1987. I think it was the 1st of December, 87, I ended up there. And then I carried on studying, sort of chipping away at my LLB degree. At that I, I registered. I got my B-Eurus. I registered for my LLB, and I was doing a couple of subjects a year. No rush to get there because I had the minimum qualification in the civil service to be able to progress. In any event, I spent five years at Justice College, no, it was more than that, it was eight years, training master's office personnel. So uh, I used to do in-service training, so I would go around to the various master's offices with colleagues, and we would do the training in the offices. So it was real practical training. I learned an immense amount at that time, and that's where my real interest in insolvency actually came about. Then in 1995, or 94, South Africa became a democracy. Career options were looking very limited in the civil service at the time. And so I decided to leave. And that was at the end of 95. And I started my own business as a consultant for insolvency practitioners, drafting their uh, liquidation and distribution accounts and things like that. That was for about a year. That was uh, my Annas Horribilis. That was the year that I got divorced and uh, there were all sorts of stuff. So it was a horrible messy year. But then at the end of that year, there was a job at the University of Pretoria being advertised. And Professor Andre Barain contacted me and suggested that I apply. And I said, well, this is for I'll LLB graduate. So he said, yes, but don't you have your LLB? I said, no, I have one subject that I Still have to pass. And that was my dissertation. Anyway, he phoned me back a bit later and said, look, you've published before. Yes. So I said, okay. So he said, if you send me your publications, I'll send them to you Nisa, and try and arrange that they recognize them for the purpose of your dissertation. And that's exactly what happened. If we're ever grateful to, to Thank Professor Barain for having done that, that was the only subject, by the way, that I ever got the distinction for for my LLB, and that was my dissertation, and I didn't do one. So uh, that tells you a story about my life, okay? That's sort of a pattern that emerged after that. In any event, I didn't get the job at the University of Pretoria because I'm clever. we we both determined that now. It was because the University of Pretoria at the time was becoming a dual-medium university, and they needed English-speaking lecturers. In fact, they needed bilingual lecturers. And I happened to fit the bill. And I think they were desperate to appoint people because I got the job. That was the beginning of my academic career. So that was in at the beginning of 1997. It was an interesting time at the University of Pretoria. They were extremely good to me. It it was a fantastic university for me to work at at the time. And they rewarded hard work uh, by promoting you. There There were never issues and increasing your salary. So I always found that I was pushing an open door. I progressed from. Lecturer to senior lecturer to associate professor in eight years, which was quite quick in the context of academia. I think you'll know, Riachat, that academia tends to shift the goalposts quite often. That's the national sport in academia, is we set the criteria and then we shift the goalposts. Just as you get getting there, then we change the rule so that you have to keep trying. That part I didn't really enjoy, but I was very fortunate in that the university did recognise whatever you did. So I, I had to push quite hard, obviously, for the promotions, and I think you know me well enough to know that when I put my mind to something, I can be quite stubborn. And that paid off. I probably made a few enemies along the way. That's life. But I did progress. So in 2005, I think it was, I became a full professor, and then I started wondering, you know, in five years, am I still going to be sitting here doing the same thing, teaching the same subjects? It sort of looked like a limiting career option. And you tend to get into a comfort zone, which is not great for growth and for having new ideas. You know, it's comfortable, you come and go, you know what you're doing, you don't really have to prepare that much anymore. And at that time, things weren't looking great in South Africa politically. I just got married again, and I was, you know, we were thinking about having children, and I wasn't sure whether I wanted to raise my child in South Africa. So I started looking for jobs overseas, but I must emphasize, this is a combination of various factors. It was a crime in South Africa for me. It was also looking to get out of my comfort zone, try something. Uh, having had a British passport all my life, I decided the easiest option would be to apply to to the UK. And so I started applying for job. And I got shortlisted a couple of times. I got shortlisted at Edinburgh for a chair. I didn't get that. In fact, none of the three shortlisted people got that post. It was an interesting time. Then I was interviewed at Leicester University. I didn't get that. And eventually I got a post at Nottingham Trent University. And left in September 2007 after spending 11 years at the University of Pretoria. It was a difficult thing to do. Uh, I don't think people realise how difficult it is to emigrate, uh, to, to you know, lift your roots and just move. There were a lot of things people didn't tell us that we didn't know. Uh, you know, you get here and you find you can't get credit because they've got no record of you, even though the bank you're banking with owns the bank in South Africa that you bank with. So it was a difficult thing to do. But in the end, I'm very pleased I did it. I spent nine years at Nottingham Trent University. And that is now 20 years of academia behind me and time to start something new. So I left and I started with Insol in January 2017. And I'm still there five and a bit years later and really enjoying, enjoying my time at Insol. Well, you know, I had to, I had to learn the ropes. So you work out how works. What I had to do all the different projects, and I was involved in a lot of stuff. And then has culminated now at the beginning of this year uh, with me being appointed as head of education. So I'm now responsible for all our educational programs, except the judicial training, which falls under someone else. And that's where I find myself now. And and what's nice is that I can use all the experience I've gathered over the years and feed it back into the system. Okay,
0: great. Yes, you have a very interesting... And background, backstory that has led you to this point. So I think it's, it's quite inspirational actually from a small town or from a local working at a master's office in the southern point of Africa to being in the UK in this, in, in Seoul. So it's, it's quite a story. But tell us a bit what attracts you to insolvency law as a field as compared to other fields. Why didn't you go into criminal law or Corporate law or contract law, whatever. What is it about insolvency law that attracts
1: you? Well, obviously, when I first set out, I was very interested in criminal law and wanted to become a prosecutor and all this kind of stuff. You know, I did have an interest in that initially. And I, you know, I think it's like all kids, we are influenced by what we see on television. Although television wasn't that old in 1980, you know, around those years only really started when in 76, I think, uh, South Africa had television for the first time. It was quite new. But we were very easily influenced by what, what we saw. And I suppose that, that made me want to become a prosecutor. But then when I started working at the master's office, uh, and as your legal studies progress, you start putting the pieces together. I think that's one thing universities are not great at, is bringing all the disparate parts together. You know, you get taught things in boxes, but very rarely do you get to join the dots. You know, so this is why you need to know that. But when it comes to insolvency law, I found that you have to know all the law, except perhaps for criminal law. And if you're bad enough at that, then maybe that too. But criminal law certainly did not feature very strongly, or or criminal procedure. But all the other subjects, law of things, law, so every everything, you know, matrimonial property law, all the law you covered when you were dealing with insolvency. And I think that's what attracted to me ultimately, is that you had to know all the law to be able to do your job. And the master of the high court was a good training ground because we had to check the work of the office hall. And in order to do that, you obviously have to know what the law is. And so that is where it started. So I think that's what attracted, even to this day, and when I was at the university, we proved this because what we did was I brought a new LLB subject in. It was an elective module for the LLB called Insolvency Practice. And so while I taught insolvency law at undergraduate level, I was looking for an elective module where I could show the students how everything came together. And you work in the field of of law of things or property law, so you understand this. How do you explain to someone how a mortgage works or how a lien works without actually showing them? And so that was what Insolvency Law did. And I would always start my lecture on that course saying, I'm going to show you now why the stuff you've learned at university is so important, where it fits in. And that was great because it worked really well. And I used to have large numbers on my elective. I think I used to have over 100 students on my elective. And I found out later, it's not because it was such a great course, but because it was considered to be an easy choice. As a reflected glory, there, I thought, well, if I can make it look easy, then I must be doing something right. And so that did attract a lot of people. We had a lot of fun in those classes. And I like to believe that people learnt a lot. In fact, if you speak to Professor Bahrain, he'll tell you that, you know, 85 was about the time that insolvency law started becoming a, a, a subject, a field of its own in the law. Before it used to be tagged on to other subjects like company law and stuff like that. And so I think that our generation had a lot to do with insolvency law becoming a discrete subject that people studied. And it was great being part of that journey because it was a core subject for the LLB and that took a lot of work to get that recognized as a core subject. So we had a a sort of stepping stone system. We had in the third year insolvency law as a, a compulsory subject. Then you could do electives in your fourth year on the LLB. And then we also had a master's degree in insolvency. And then we had what is today known as the Saripa Diploma, or we used to call it a diploma, it wasn't a diploma, but the Saripa course, before that, the Apes, of course. So we had, basically, we covered the whole spectrum of, of insolvency law. And we found that that pushed up the standard of insolvency law across the country quite substantially. You know, it might sound arrogant to say that, but I, it wasn't just one person, it was a group of insolvency academics. And I think we had a lot to do. Was lifting the standard of insolvency law across across South Africa, and the fact that CIRIPA is one of the one of the biggest, I think it's the fifth biggest member association of insol proves that there's huge interest and huge participation in insolvency law in South Africa.
0: Okay, good. Yes, that's very interesting. It's true what you say about how insolvency law brings all the other areas together. It's it's kind of like the test for any other area of law. You know, you can only know whether a property right is as strong as you think it is when someone goes insolvent. It's like insolvency is when the poor boy is the fan and when you need to know whether a contract is as strong as you think it is or whether another right is as strong as it is or whether the procedures work the way they should work and so on. So it is, it is really true and makes it the interesting area of law.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, most questions in insolvency law can actually be answered by reference to your normal principles of laws. So you just got to boil it down to its basic facts. Again, you'll find the answer. So
0: in your view, what are the main purposes of insolvency law? So whose interest is it supposed to serve and things like that? What's your view on the purposes of insolvency?
1: Yeah, look, this is a tough one because I'm I'm a bit of a traditionalist. If you go and look at the roots of insolvency law more than 2,000 years ago, I mean, the first written law, the 12th table, makes reference to insolvency law. And so this has obviously been very important for a long time. But what people tend to forget is that they well, I don't think they forget because the insolvency stigma is still there. But in days gone by, you weren't actually supposed to get credit, all right? It was frowned upon. And so we've moved from a, a situation where credit was a no no to where credit is a prerequisite today. You can't survive without credit today. And so this became, a, it became a, or it went from a punitive thing to becoming something different. And today it's about, you can't just look at the debtor and, you know, and say, bad person, you pay your debts and let's string you up, let's kill you, or let's put you in prison, or whatever the case might be. And uh, primarily, obviously, this is all aimed at the creditors, protecting the creditors. They've given you money, it was paid back. You'll remember when you studied law, there was a maxim. Pactum sunt servanda, honour your obligation. That basic principle, I think, used to be the backbone of insolvency. Right, Honour your obligations. If you don't, there will be consequences. You ask if there's been a change. I think if there has been a change, it's been that. Certainly, that maxim of honour your obligations no longer applies, especially in corporate insolvency. It may still apply to an extent in consumer insolvency. So I don't think that there are many banks nowadays that make loans that actually expect to be repaid in full. They may expect a haircut somewhere along the line. I don't know. So I think that's definitely changed. And I I think what has changed, and correctly so in my view, is that it's not just about the creditors anymore. Uh, There's a much more nuanced approach, a balanced approach. There are other stakeholders we need to look at the other stakeholders. And we need to try and balance all the interests. That is obviously a very difficult thing to do. And in my view, no bankruptcy system really gets it right. You know, we talk about balancing but then we give the tax man preference. There's a bit of hypocrisy for me in insolvency law and the approaches it takes. But certainly, yes, insolvency law has changed. And I think the fresh start approach is great. I think it's necessary. I think, however, that there is a difference between developed and developing economies, and people need to be careful about applying developed country principles to developing countries. An example is just giving people a discharge. You know uh, that that is a, well. Our insolvency law should make provision for an immediate discharge once someone's been declared insolvent. Okay, that as a traditionist, that doesn't always sit well with me. That looks like it could be open to abuse and would be abused. And that is why people need to take culture and historic things into consideration when when making decisions on this basis. You can't just apply first world standards to everyone, or if I first world probably not the right idea, developed standards, developed country standards to everyone.
0: Okay. You just mentioned now um, your work in insolvency law reform, so we might as well uh, talk a bit about that. So tell us how you got involved in insolvency law reform projects and what, what did you do? What, what was that all about?
1: Well, I wasn't really aware of all these insolvency law reform projects at the time, but bear in mind that in March, I think it was March 2007, we had a, an insult conference in Cape Town. I was obviously still in South Africa at the time. I was on a panel with Mahesh Utam Shandani, from the World Bank, and uh, we were on the same panel. We did our thing, and then we all went our separate ways. When I moved to the UK in 2007, later that year, I remember getting a call from Mahesh saying, "Oh, I hear you in the UK now." Yes, and said, "Well, that's great because now we could probably use you on our law, law reform project." And I said, "Okay, why now that I'm in the UK?" Well. You now now you know the UK and the South African system, so you've you've got more than one system and you're able so you know, we can use you. And I thought, well, I don't know anything about the UK system to be honest, but I'll take it. Anyway, I was I was given a small project to do. My first project was in Malawi. And um I didn't really know how it worked, but I went at that time with the doing business team. It later turned out that there were specific law reform projects being run by the debt resolution and exit team. Right, these these teams I had different names over the years, but I got involved, and it was interesting in the sense that I've learned for the first time the challenges that go with doing law reform. Now, how the World Bank works is they have to be invited to to do work in a country. But once they are, then they can go in, and then. They, we obviously do a diagnostic of what there is, and we have a look. We conduct interviews with various people, and then we go back and then we write a report saying the laws are outdated; they need to be updated. You know, this is what needs to be done. And so, it's, it's a very basic thing. And I had no idea what I was doing first time, to be very honest with you—absolutely no idea. I started by saying, "Well, guys, you know, we have an opportunity here to to rewrite." Your laws and get rid of your colonial shackles, because obviously all the colonial legislation was, is, is still in a lot of these uh, um, African countries, African jurisdictions. Not only in Africa, across the world, you will find any colony. The response was, thank you very much. But no, we like the UK system. Thank you. Could Please update it for us. So that was that. And I learned a valuable lesson there is that you know, people don't necessarily want wholesale change. They like things that they are acquainted with that are recognizable. I found that in South Africa too, because my PhD or my LLD, my doctorate, was with a view to a Unified Insolvency Act in South Africa, It was called the Framework for Corporate Insolvency Law Reform in South Africa. And basically, I proposed that there should be a Unified Act, which uh, has now for 20 years been in the wings, waiting to be passed. Anyway, that, that's beside the point. The fact is, I found out in South Africa that people do not like change. And that I've seen in almost every country where I've, where I've ever done any work whatsoever. The law reform program was, was good because it taught me to stand back and look at things uh, from, with a different perspective. And so you tend to look at things big picture more when you do a law reform project. You don't get bogged down uh, in the minutiae of of every single thing. You've got to stand back and look at the system as a whole and say, does this work? Does it not work? I think one of the biggest problems in the world of of law reform is that people tend to just adopt laws wholesale from another country. I've seen it happen in countries in Africa where they've taken the UK administration and just bunged it into their own law. That doesn't work. You have to contextualize the stuff. You can take a concept and adjust it, but you can't just import a law wholesale. That does not work. You have to tailor it to the circumstances of each country. The, the UK system is, is it's a developed country with a very big economy and you need to have specific laws. The countries in Africa that have adopted the UK administration model wholesale don't have that. And so it doesn't sit well, jars it jars a bit and there are, there are problems of interpretation and actually pushing or pulling all those provisions through. They can cause real problems. The other thing I've learned about law reform is that insolvency does not have a lot of like, political clout. Okay, There's no political will to change the insolvency law. When you go to a government and say, we're going to change your insolvency law, they think, listen, we've got far bigger problems than insolvency law. This is not even on our radar. So that is very, very difficult to do. Even governments getting World Bank money that are obliged to pass these laws are still uncomfortable doing it, I think, in some cases. And what what did happen in some cases was that countries would adopt the law, but it would never be implemented. So they passed the law, it's there, but it's not being used. One of the other things I learned is that There are only so many options when you're dealing with insolvency. I remember doing work in Trinidad and Tobago, and they were modelling theirs on the the Canadian uh, legislation. And there were a lot of terms there that I just did not understand uh, or didn't know what they meant. But when you look at the provisions, oh, it's this, oh, it's that, okay. So there are only so many things you can do. So despite the fact that everything's got a different name, they all do the same thing, more or less. Obviously, with variations and very small adjustments for that specific jurisdiction, Canada being a developed country. What I found interesting, a lot of Caribbean islands adopt Canadian legislation. And, um, I suppose I'm not sure Well, maybe it's proximity of Canada to them, exchange of knowledge, things like that. So that, that that might be why. What else did I learn? I learned that if you try and sell insolvency law reform on the back of saving jobs, then you're probably going to be more successful. That's what we did eventually. Our, our, our tactics that have changed is saying, well, we can bring in a new corporate rescue mechanism to will save jobs. And when you talk about saving jobs, suddenly everyone's ears prick up and they do see political capital out of that. And that's how you get some traction with these laws, in my view. I think a lot of the time there's opposition because people like to think that they can do their own law reform South Africa certainly falls into that category. As far as I'm aware, South Africa has never accepted help from the World Bank for insolvency law reform. Uh, they want to do it on their own steam.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can see that, I mean, this must have been a big, or it must have had amazing influence in your life. I mean, looking at the insolvency law from a perspective that many of us don't really get to see, I mean, it you must, you must open your eyes to different and new things
1: that you might not have thought about before yeah I, I saw that quite recently actually uh, you know w- when you work in one jurisdiction you tend to you, you tend to get to know the detail very well and you you know I know a lot of people who get very pumped up about certain things and and I was one of those people but I was reading uh, the Insul era papers and there was a, a contribution there on tax claims in brazil i think it was and the authors were saying but it's unacceptable that the tax office in brazil does not agree to
0: you know that there's nothing
1: in the legislation to allow them to compromise claims or reduce claims or to take a haircut and that is something that i learned in all the years that i've been building and the first thing that struck me but hang on if you do do that, what's the first thing that's going to happen? If you say that the taxman's claim can be reduced, what's going to happen? People are going to stop paying their tax because they know that they're going to get a, you know, that they can get the hair cut down the road. Why pay it? And that's why governments, very few governments I know, will agree formally to having their claims reduced. South Africa, they've had the right approach, I think. They are open to negotiate and to reduce a claim. In, in, but it's not policy. It's not written in a law anywhere. It's not written in a statute. But that is their approach. I think that's the right approach. You can't entrench or pass legislative provisions that are going to entrench people not paying their taxes. Tax is something you have to pay, and, and everyone should pay their share. So that was the one thing I saw. So it's these small things that you pick up. But what I find a lot more useful, is standing back, and, the, and law reform has taught me to do that, is stand back and look at this, at the whole jurisdiction. So, okay, we're looking at bringing in a new corporate rescue mechanism. Should the court be involved? All right, well, let's look at how the courts perform in this country. Well, oh, perhaps not. The judges might not be trained adequately. Not their fault. It's not, it's not pointing fingers. It's just a fact. If the courts are inefficient, do you really want to have a system that runs through the courts? The answer is no. So how do you do it then? Well, you can get creditors to agree and get the court to rubber stamp it in certain circumstances so so that they can be enforced. But these are the kind of things you have to learn. I also think people don't realize to what extent uh, cultural issues play a role. Uh, You know, I I worked in Bhutan. Their gross domestic product or something is measured in happiness, right? They're a happy country. But there are very big cultural issues there relating to so It's a Buddhist country, so you have to be aware of these things. And you can't use strong terminology and, and things like that to describe circumstances because it's not acceptable. So these are issues that you don't necessarily know when you're going to a country. You, you have to be very careful and you have to listen. I'm not a great listener, always. I'm first to admit that. I tend to be quite bullshit, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I tend to talk over people at times. It's not great. And so uh, one of the things I suppose I had to learn was to to just not talk so much and just listen to what other people had to say. A lot of the time, perhaps their understanding of what the law should be was, in my view, incorrect. But at least it gives you an idea of why they're thinking. So yeah, it's tricky doing law reform. I don't think I, I always have the right or I've always had the right personality for that. You have to be able to listen a lot. I'm very patient, and I'm not a very patient person. So that that didn't always go well. But I like to think that we, we achieved a lot of success with the law reform. We had a number of, of, of laws passed across Africa. And uh, and I worked with uh, Antonio Menezes from the World Bank, maybe, which she was responsible for Africa. So we did a lot of work. You know, I worked in the Citra, I worked in Seychelles, I worked in Mauritius, like Malawi. I, all sorts of places, uh, and it was it was great. With my job now at uh, Insol, it's a little more difficult to to do uh, Insolvency Law Reform Project with the World Bank. Obviously, this fed into my work at the university, and so it was a lot easier then to do that.
0: That's very interesting, David. Are you busy with any new or interesting research at the moment? Busy writing something,
1: perhaps? Uh, well, I like to write, but I don't write because I lead a very busy life at Insol. You know that I don't really get time, and when I do get time out, I certainly don't want to be doing any research because you know the brain's getting a bit old now. But the nature of my job, because I set up courses, requires me to be up to date at least with what's going on around the world. So that was the reasoning behind me. Remaining involved to some extent with the technical publications at InSoul, even though I've moved on to head of education, I, I'm i still involved in some of the technical, things, especially the academic papers, and that way I stay up to date. I think COVID, there was a lot of activity around COVID, and that never really interested me, to be honest. I started getting a little tired of hearing about COVID all the time, and you know, thinking, well, this is going to pass, and we're going to be back. We're going to be somewhere else in two or three years' time, which is now turning out to be the case. I could never have expected that there'd be a war on our doorstep just after the pandemic. But that's life. That's how things work. To answer your question, though, I am busy putting a fintech course together at the moment for the insolvency professional. And that requires me to read up on a lot of stuff that I know nothing about. Like fintech. I know nothing about fintech. <laughs> yeah,
0: it seems like fintech is busy taking over and there's so much being written exactly. about it also.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And, and it's, it's crucial that insolvency practitioners should know at least what cryptocurrency is, what fintech is, because fintechs a lot wider than cryptocurrency. What is a smart contract? What is blockchain? So these are things I've had to read up on. I don't think you need to know everything about a subject to put a course together, but you have to know enough to know how it should fit together and who to use to, to write the material. So this is proving to be, I was very excited about it last year when I came up with the idea, but uh, now it's a little more difficult because I, um, I'm really struggling to get a proposal out that makes any sense. It's a question of getting information. There's so much information out there. And just as you think, okay, I've got it now, then something new happens. So keeping up to date is very difficult. But that's where my research lies, is looking at where we want to do our next course. What can we do it on? Where is the interest in insolvency circles? What would you want to have a course on? You know, that that's difficult. Because people are always saying, oh, but you guys should have this or should have that. And when you ask them for concrete proposals, suddenly there's no one, and so it's very difficult to work out. But there certainly is a need for training, and I think the Foundation Certificate has proved that uh, there's a big demand out there for knowledge, and there always will be. And uh, I think INSOL is really well placed to be able to provide affordable and accessible training.
0: Let's talk a bit about the Foundation Certificate course now that you've mentioned it. Tell us a bit more about this certificate course and you're free to, you're welcome to use it as marketing. Hopefully many people will be listening to this and will be interested. Uh, The, uh,
1: the uh, registrations for the 2022-23 course just opened on the 1st of May. So I already have uh, my first applications in and I see there are another four or five that have started the process. So that's, that's great. So soon the registrations close on the 26th of August. And the course will start formally on the 1st of September. But the idea for this course actually came when I was still in academia. I was at Nottingham Trent University. And I could see that there was a need for a course for people to do, especially from developing countries. All right. Because uh, while the UK and the US and, and a lot of major jurisdictions have very good courses in insolvency, Australia is another one. A lot of countries don't have anything. And of course, a lot of the countries that do have training, it's, it's jurisdiction specific. So Australian training is on Australia. You know, that's where it should be. South African courses on South Africa. But I thought there was, there was a need for a course where people from developing countries could do it online as a, as a sort of distance education because they don't have access to it. So but the idea was to make an affordable or to develop an affordable course for people to do from anywhere in the world. But unfortunately, in academia in the UK, courses are expensive. And while my idea was to benefit people from developing countries, they are classified as international students. And therefore, the approach has always been that international students pay a lot more for their studies than local students. When I tried to explain the concept that what we're trying to to develop a a course here for developing countries and that we should make it affordable for them. Because I think the fee was something like 3,800 pounds. Now, there's no way anyone from South Africa or any African country for that matter, well, there might be some that could afford it, but the idea was not to get the cream. The idea was to make it affordable and available for everyone, accessible. Anyway, I managed to get the course off the ground at at Nottingham Trent University at a reduced fee, I think, of 2,800 pounds. The most we ever had was about ten people enrolling in a year, and that just wasn't good enough. When I left, they stopped that course, so that course stopped running. So when I joined Insol, I saw the opportunity, and the then chief executive of Insol, Claire Broughton, also saw that, and we had a chat, and uh, she asked me if I thought we could set up that course through Insol. At the time. Task Force 2021 was on the go that had just started. And Task Force 2021 was setting InSol's goals for the next five years. And I was one of the working groups, working group 16, dealt with providing online courses. And so the foundation certificate was a direct result of that. It took about two years to develop. And obviously, people all had different ideas about how this stuff works. And it's the usual thing, you know, there'd be a guy from a country that would say, oh, but you've got to go and do it through this university in the US. And then I would write back and say, let me guess, you did your master's degree there. Yes, how did you know that? That comes with experience. The point is, is that I didn't see it that way. I wanted to develop a course that people could do easily and cheaply from their homes, from their desk, and access the material anytime they wanted to. That was the idea behind the course. Setting up a course with different modules was a very difficult thing to do because we had we had no IT system that could accommodate that. But we did. We were at the time busy redesigning the website. So I said, "Well, can't we design this at the same time?" Yes, we can. And so that's how it started. And so they developed this platform that we could present it on. That has changed since then. Insol has invested significant uh, funds into a new system. We've had our problems along the way, as you do with IT. But in my opinion, the course works well. So currently, uh, the course has 41 modules in total. Students have to do eight modules to get the certificate. You can do the course over one year or two years, your choice. But you have to finish in two years. If you don't finish in two years, that's it. Everything is written off. You can enroll again and you only get credit for the introductory module if you've passed it. How the modules work, and this made the system very complicated, was uh, in the first instance, there's a distinction between designated and non-designated countries. So if you're a designated country, South Africa is a designated country. All the countries that are not high income, according to the World Bank classification, are designated countries. That has upset some people. Some people say but China, India, Russia, these countries are all rich. Why are they getting a special fee? Well, they're not according to the World Bank. According to the World Bank, they are not high-income countries. And that's our only test. We treat everyone the same. So developed countries pay a different price to developing countries. To give you an idea now for the coming course, if you're a non-member of INSOL and you do the course, you have to do eight modules. You will pay £200 per module. So 1,600 pounds, okay. if you're from a developed country, America, UK, Europe, most of Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, you name it, okay? All the rest are developing countries, and then you pay your fee per year. So if you're South African and you're a non-member, you would pay 400 pounds for the year. If you manage to finish the course in a year, that's what it'll cost you, 400 pounds. If you remember, it's only £300, you get 25% discount. And that applies to all members, so from developing countries as well. A developing country applicant would pay £150 per module, not £200 per module, which brings it down to £1,200. So, you have to do three compulsory modules. And the first module obviously is, is uh, the general introductory one. Everyone has to do that. Then you have a choice. Module two is either you do the Uncontrolled Model Laws or you do the European Insolvency Regulation. You have to do one of the two. You can do both, but as an elective. So you take one as a compulsory, one as an elective. The module three, also a compulsory module, you must choose between the insolvency system of the United Kingdom or the United States. And, uh, you can do both once again. One is a compulsory, one is an elective. And I must say that most people do tend to do that because the US and the UK modules have been drafted on a comparative basis under the same headings as to give you an idea of how the systems differ and where they are similar. It's a very interesting read, by the way. I think the most interest generated in the course is because of that, seeing how the two systems work side by side. I found that to be extremely interesting. Then. From the 38 remaining modules, you can do any any five. A lot of people tend to take the other compulsory modules that they didn't take as a compulsory module. But then we've got countries like Singapore is the most popular elected module. And then we've got Cayman, BVI, they're very popular. Funnily enough, the United Arab Emirates is also popular. So what we did with the electors, we put them into five regions. The Americas, and there we cover Canada, we cover Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Colombia. But Then we've got offshore, and the offshore ones are very popular, obviously. We've got Bermuda, we've got uh, BVI, Cayman, we've got Jersey, Guernsey. We've just added the Bahamas as well. We are looking to add more as we go along. Some jurisdictions are both offshore and as one of the other electors. So Hong Kong, for example, I think a lot of people would regard as an offshore jurisdiction, but we've got it under Asia. So the other groupings are Europe, Africa, Middle East. I struggle to find authors for some of these countries, by the way. Then we've also got Asia Pacific Rim. And then we've got one standalone uh, module on ethics and professional practice. I do intend adding one more module and that is uh, accounting for lawyers. So the course is great. We started with 106 when we started the course in uh, in 2019. Then we had 122, and then the current group that are busy, 128. So we'll see if we're going to increase that number, but it's around 350 people that have already enrolled on the course. The pass rate is about 85 90%. There are people that fail, and that's good. That means there's a good standard being applied. But the course is great. It will give you the basics. I've had fantastic feedback, and um, we hope it continues into the future. One last thing I'll say about the course is that while it was intended to serve our members in developing countries, the take-up has been far bigger in developed countries. So we find now the bigger firms are sending their people every year. They send their new staff to the, you know, on the course, because it's, it's a distance education. It's completely online. It's a self-study course. And it serves that purpose well. So they're not losing their staff to go to a course. They're still working and the people can do the course part-time. And I think that's, that's been the success of it. Keeping it affordable, I think has had a lot to do with it as well. But we're using that platform now for many other courses. We, we're presenting the South African course now online as well. The Serupa course we're presenting. And we've designed a module for the uh, Singapore IPass course. We are speaking to Myanmar about a course uh, in the future, but obviously with the coup there that this has now been put on hold until things normalize. We are looking at other jurisdictions in the Caribbean for jurisdiction-specific courses. So that's where we're at. Exciting times. I am now... In a position where I can focus entirely on putting new courses together, it is a time consuming thing and it, you have to have a lot of patience but I do believe we will we'll see a number of courses sprouting up in in the coming years.
0: I can add my voice also to the course I was one of the students when was it last year or something
1: It was the previous year twenty 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 one
0: it was it was really great It's really enriching to be exposed to so many different systems other than only your own. It just opens your mind. It it makes you see how, as you pointed out earlier, how everything is at the end of the day, all the systems are almost the same. Not exactly, but you see the same themes running out through it, but you also see some surprising differences, things that you like, oh what look at this country is doing that you didn't even think about or oh, it's it's enriching, so I can really understand why even persons in first world countries take it because we all want the exposure to all the different systems, countries that you don't even have never thought about studying. So you take a look at them, and some of them are the most interesting ones often, the ones that you didn't think would be, would be interesting.
1: And that comes back to my point earlier that I made in that, you know, I, I found a lot of benefit from comparing systems and looking at you know, how they work. And I think that people that are doing the course find the same thing as you just confirmed.
0: Best of luck with that in the future. I, I hope your numbers will continue growing. And as you said, there are other courses coming up. Good luck with all of them also. It seems there is a hunger for learning in this in this field all over the
1: world. There always has been.
0: And it's great that it is online because it really brings the whole world together and gives opportunities to people from everywhere to, to enrich themselves with further education. So congratulations with that.
1: The congratulations must go to the people that actually draft all the material for us. I just put the stuff together. So the real expertise lies behind all the modules and the people that put so much time into that. And I would like to thank them for that because uh, without them, the course could not have been successful. It is successful because of them.
0: Yeah, it's good. Thank you to all of them also. So, David, at the end of the interview, our time is running out. I think we can probably continue speaking for hours on end because. It's so interesting, but we have to wrap it up at some point. But before we end, there's a couple of what we call surprise questions or non-disclosed questions that you didn't get before the time. These are not too serious, just kind of a couple of fun questions to just talk about something other than just insolvency law. I didn't choose these questions, by the way, but we asked these questions to all of the interview. So the first one is, What books that you have read have been the greatest influence in your life, your favorite books?
1: Mm, That's a difficult one, because I don't really, I I read for pleasure. I don't read serious books. I read for a living. I read so much stuff that when I do, uh, I prefer my Jack Reacher novels. Thank you very much. I'll pick up a Jack Reacher novel any day. And I will read it cover to cover in a couple of hours.
0: But that can be your answer. I, when I was reading the questions earlier, I thought, what would I answer? And I thought I, would, I might answer the Harry Potter books or something.
1: <laughs> the Jack Reacher is my go-to guy. And I just love the fact that he. It's so unbelievable that it's great. It's fantastic. And now that they're making series out of these books, it's even better. So, yeah, that's what I do. I only read for pleasure. I don't like to read too much because I read every single day of my life.
0: So I know what you mean. So, no, but that's a great answer. Why not? Um, if it influences your life in the, in the sense that it relaxes you or it gives you enjoyment, then that's a perfect answer. Now, is there anything in your life that is either a failure or an apparent failure that actually led to an, a success along the road?
1: Yeah, I think my entire life's been like that, to be very honest. But I was a late starter in most things in life. I, I got married late. I had a kid when I was 47. I was a late starter in academia. I mean, I was deep in my 30s when I started at the university. Um, I've never really been like that. You know, I, I haven't had an easy life, I wouldn't say. I, I've had to fight for everything. I, as I said, I grew up extremely poor. Uh, at the end of the day, I found that things that happened like bad things that happened can lead to positivity. The world is in balance, in my view. You know, whatever happens on the bad side of the scale will balance out on the good side of the scale. And I must say that all my failures, or I wouldn't want to call them failures, I would say all the obstacles I've ever faced in my life have just made me more determined to succeed and have led me down new paths that I never expected. So there is a silver cloud. I think people will tell you that there is a silver cloud. Things might look really, really bad. But there, there's always someone that will reach out. And if you are hardworking enough, if you believe in yourself enough, then you will come out again on top. And you, you can't keep good people down, which might mean that I, I'm not saying I'm a good person. They could have kept me down. But I think that if there's a message for anyone that, that listens to this, is don't let obstacles in your life stop you from achieving your goals. Just work around them, stand up, and move on.
0: And I think what's what's inspirational for me also about your story is is that it shows you don't necessarily have to follow the normal pattern, you know, the normal story. Do this at this age, and then the next step, the next step. And you don't have to stay at the same job for the your entire life. You know, there's all sorts of things you can do, and you can end up at a at an amazing place. I mean, would you have thought that you would be now where you are now? If you think back forty years ago at the Masters office, I mean. It's, you can never know where your life will end up.
1: You never know where you're going to end up, and yeah, there's nothing wrong with going off script. It's just a question of whatever you do, do it res- as respectfully as you can. Uh, I haven't always been successful. Follow your dreams, and and don't let people tell you what to do. You can listen to what other people have to say, but at the end of the day, make your own decisions. Follow your follow your instincts, and you'll be fine.
0: You actually kind of answered the next question because the next question here was if you could have like a message to the world that you can paste on a billboard, anything that you want to tell billions of people in the world, what would that be?
1: <laughs> Believe in yourself and never give up. It's, it's a long cliche, but the, the, the believing in yourself part, I find in modern life is very difficult. People don't have that self-belief anymore for whatever reason. It may be that social media affects the, you know they, them in the sense of what they should be thinking, what they should be doing. Don't. Just follow your own instincts and follow your own dreams. You know what to do and and have that confidence and belief in, in what you believe in. Don't let other people tell you what to believe in. That will lead to disaster. You can only be invested if you're doing something you believe in.
0: Thank you very much, David, for joining us today in this interview.
1: Thank you, Rechard. It was lovely doing an interview with someone I know. Bobby, especially the company and everyone else out there. And uh, I'm so pleased to see INSOL era doing such a great job putting academics on the map. Long may it continue.
0: Thank you very much, David. Thank you very much to all the listeners of this podcast. Hopefully, you got something out of this as well. And if anyone has any questions about, especially the INSOL certificate course, you can take a look on the website of INSOL. But I'm sure you can also contact David if you have specific questions about it. If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Contact us on LinkedIn and Twitter at InSol International using the hashtag InSolTalks. The information provided is intended for a general audience and reflects the personal views of the participants. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Thank you for listening.